0: People are like, no, I need Fortnite to save the world, not any sort of game, right?
1: <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss using play for everyday activism with my guest, Matty Bryce.
0: Hi, I'm Matty, and I'm a visiting assistant professor at New York University's Game Center.
1: Matty is an activist, and this conversation about the relationship between activism and play touches on a wide range of topics, from educational games to psychological experiments to BDSM. Since Matty has been well-known in and around games for many years, I thought we'd start this episode with her summary of some of the work she's
0: done in the past decade
1: or so. I have been
0: in and around games for, wow, the past decade, which is kind of intense to think about. (laughs) It's the the first time I've had to introduce myself in that way uh, since it's been a decade. But I started out as a games critic, kind of like around the sort of like hobbyists, writers around games, particularly into... Writings around representation, social justice, and being a part of the budding activist scenes that are in games that are, you know, not consumer activists, but more about political action and social equity in in games. And then I started to become involved with DIY maker spaces and maker movements really interested in people who don't have traditional backgrounds and traditional skills when it comes to game making and trying to, in effort to kind of diversify the kinds of people who are making games by opening up different values in games. So we can start to begin acknowledging different sorts of values and knowledges and skills. And then I basically was in the sort of like indie art activist scenes. I was an associate director for IndieCade, which is an international indie games festival for a few years. I've run multiple conferences from the Queerness and Games Conference, which is a little bit more academic leaning, to Lost Levels, to Playground, to a whole bunch of just different, you know, uh, weird event interventions. And then now for the past uh, six years, I've been teaching in New York City. And I, just this past year, got hired as a visiting professor at NYU Game Center. So I'm now teaching there full-time, teaching game design and related topics.
1: So what does your work at NYU entail then?
0: Currently, we have, you know, three branches when it comes to academia in an art school. So I'm an arts professor. So one is obviously teaching, but I am really interested in design pedagogy and like, what is it about teaching design that we can begin to act out our different sorts of values when it comes to, you know, a more progressive, more equitable games. And so that's kind of on my mind is like, how do I teach students to be a little bit more open and creative when it comes to the sort of issues that I feel like more ingrained critics and professionals have when it comes to games. I do usual service stuff. So that means being on committees that are about holding accountability in academia, when it comes to racial justice issues, when it comes to different sorts of initiatives for diversity and equity in academia, particularly in our department. And I have a creative arts practice. And so that means continuing to do my creative arts, be it working on games or on doing academic research or doing other professional freelance work. And so I feel like I kind of am juggling all three of those sorts of things in my current position. What kind of classes have you taught there? So I created a class called Tackling Representation in Games. I guess I've kind of one become known for being like a representation in games kind of person. Like absolutely not the first person to write about representation in games when it came to video games and the sort of games blogosphere and such, but I just happened to gain a reputation for being able to write and speak about intersectional issues in games pretty fluently. And so that was kind of like my main sort of like independent class that I have created. Not necessarily to teach, but to have a sort of discussion and awareness building around political issues as it comes to representation. And so understanding like how do games sit as cultural influences? What are the consequences of representing people, cultures, and even sometimes things in games? And what are those issues both practically and philosophically? And so I would say that kind of like was my sort of introduction into academia and into teaching. But now I do a wide range of studio courses. And I've more recently become interested in design research, as in how does the design process itself influence the things we make? And how can we think about how we change the craft, the crafting of games? If we change our perspective on how to create them, can we begin to better involve the sort of like topics or experimental qualities that I feel like have started to come out within the past, you know, five to eight years since the DIY revolution, if if one wants to kind of call it that, that has kind of impacted games at large.
1: So, how much would you say that the issues that we face in games are entrenched in the way that we make them? Like, how much are those two things inseparable?
0: I think they are completely inseparable. I think that the ways in which we create them has also been the ways in which we talk about them, which is also in the ways in which we play with them. Is an underappreciated part of the conversation. Like, while people think about making games as like, oh, how about you just make more, let's say, black characters. Now, like, yes, we could do that, right? But like, is that really the issue? Is it issue that we need more 3D models of different bodies? Uh, Sure, maybe that's one part of the issue. But like, fundamentally, the design process and the creation process is where these sorts of issues um, have come up. So, you know, I've always identify with more radical politics and I mean radical kind of in the original use of the term when people self-identified as radical which is like getting to the roots of the issue right like what is the fundamental issue when it comes to political issues and social equity and I think that the root of the issue is how we even go about creating the game from inception what are the ways that people are taught to do it what are our lineages like what practices influence us what kind of people influence us and encourage us to make. And so if you look into archives, or I'm pretty sure there's like still a common amount of games being made here. If you look at the games made from like Twine or Game Maker or all these sorts of, you know, weird tools, Bitsy, whatever, right? And they're influenced by people who, you know, are not programmers or more interested in personal expression or interested in political activism. The form of the game just is a little different. Like there's just something a little slightly different about the ways games become because of the context in which they created. And so that's a really fundamental interest of mine now, especially as I teach design, I feel like a part of my responsibility or activism is trying to combat hegemony in educating the design process. We've talked about this
1: issue of diversity and representation within games what about the role that games can play in the broader context of things like diversity, representation, just social justice in general?
0: Actually, I feel like what has motivated my work, particularly the change over into design research and the way in which my design is like, I would say post-Gamergate, so post mm, 2014, especially post-US elections, so post-2016, a lot of people in games and in, in technology in the larger field of technology and design are kind of like, well, what do we do? Like eventually, like when you're a part of an industry that is just so steeped in like just like conspicuous consumption, very consumer focused, very like entertainment, everything is fun, <laughs> but wait, we're also are we're also good, you know? And so eventually with enough like horrible things happening on the planet, eventually people are kind of like, we need to do something. Like I need to just feel like I'm like contributing towards something. And I think, uh, especially around the time between Gamergate and the US election, I feel like a lot of people were asking me those sorts of questions. They're like, well, what do we do as game designers? And I feel like that is the question I'm chasing. I don't know if I necessarily have an answer outside of the usual, what does art contribute to the world? And You know, what's kind of interesting is that a lot of social practice art has been happening since the 90s, which is like forms of art that try to incorporate social impact as part of its objective, as part of its art, often are funded projects by museums and other sorts of institutions. And we do have a sort of analog to that. Games for Change, social impact games, things like that, Uh, especially here in New York City. We do have a lot of... um, Games for social impact, focus, companies, nonprofits, events, etc. And so I feel like actually what happened is that the mysticism around games has kind of faded. I think that's what actually happened. We had a sort of early aughts or mid aughts sort of like, Video games can save the world. Just, you know, if everyone can kind of be in a World of Warcraft sort of mentality when it comes to social issues, we can gather together and pitch in and games will solve things. And I think post-2014, I think people became disillusioned and they're like, we don't actually see the benefits of games right now. We can have like, yeah, I have fun times with other people with games, but like are games themselves saving anything... The answer is clearly no, right? Like it's like not unless it's on a very particular purpose. We can at least say games are not helping on accident, right, in general. And so I feel like what is the project now is like how do we begin to shift things as games creators to begin exploring how games and play can help? And there is like play is a really fruitful stance when it comes to social issues, like we need cultural change. And cultural change does not come with a wave of a magic wand. It doesn't come with the passing of a law. It doesn't even come with an election. It comes out in other cultural processes, right? And a play perspective on that is actually quite revealing. And being able to be in non-game spaces as a game designer is actually a quite interesting position I've found. And so I feel like integrating into other fields, other modes of engagement, and also just looking at, like, at activists and their bottom-up strategy of creative arts interventions and how games fall into that. I think one reason that a lot of people feel like games don't contribute is because whenever I say the word games, people are actually thinking in their brain consumer entertainment video games, right? Mm. But games themselves do not equate to consumer entertainment digital or video games, right? And so I think because of that tension, people are like, no, I need Fortnite to save the world, not <laughs> any sort of game, right? You know, people desperately need AAA companies or fully 3D rendered games with voice actors. They just need that to save the world because it's just like this long-standing desire for people to, who still need like their hobbies to be justified or something, right? <laughs> but like, there actually is a really interesting engagement with games and play if we just could drop the controller for a second, right? Like, must that be everything that involves us in, in this topic? So yeah, I think that that's where the work needs to be done. And that's why I've decided to, to focus there as opposed to my usual or past involvement, which was as a critic to the industry.
1: I want to touch on what you said about games changing things by accident versus on purpose, Mm -hmm. and how maybe sometimes there's the possibility that a a game designed with intention could change something. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed uh, Laura Hudson and Mary Flanagan for The Guardian about games like Fantastic Fetus, Mm -hmm. which is about abortion and this notion that you can make a game that could change someone's mind on abortion. And one thing that we talked about is that these games can maybe be less effective when people who are playing them know that the designer is trying to influence them. Is that something that you've come across and do you think that you can avoid that?
0: I think that if we're speaking in the language, particularly of video games, I think that is true. Mm. Which is like, if you're trying to use the model of a video game and you want to use the sort of expectations of a video game to your advantage, then most people who understand the language of video games, people who have a prior relationship to video games, tend to not like educational material. I mean, just the idea of an educational game to at least an adult is a pejorative, right? Like we tend to be like, oh, educational (laughs) games, right? Like these things that tend to not be fun, right? Like fun is on the opposite end of education in this sort of educational game paradigm. And so there's just this, there's this large distaste to being told anything directly in a game. I only feel like that is an issue when you're trying to lean into the assumptions and affordances of commercial entertainment video game design. And I just find that commercial video game design is not necessarily the best way of making social impact games. I feel like maybe it shouldn't have to be about commercial design. Maybe it shouldn't have to be about entertainment. Maybe the process changes when we remove those sorts of expectations. And so for me, I am more likely to be doing my work in, let's say, workshops with activists with a museum staff with government representatives with a new union you know like those are places in which i am employing game design and when i'm in those and i'm using the different languages and modes when it comes to let's say the workshop or when it comes to activist planning uh, like weeks of action if one will, then the play is much different. Like you don't, people can know exactly what is going on, submit themselves to the playful process and totally have a wonderful experience and learn something. I think mostly about, I don't know if you're familiar with Nordic LARPs by chance? Uh, A little. I mean, I'm not from the Nord, (laughs) so I can't talk from particular experience, but like there's like a reputation of a genre of games that on purpose put players into kind of more extreme or tense or political or dramatic physical situations were for role-playing. So people have role-played being in a bomb shelter. People have role-played being in a society in which gender is decided on whether you're a morning or evening person as opposed to your physical attributes. You know, there's just like different ways in which people have allowed themselves to really experience life in different ways, lots of historical games in that genre and in exploring the kind of messiness that comes with the narrative of history and things like that. And so people have rather willingly, you know, done these sorts of games. Of course, those are harder because they're in person. They require a lot of effort. But again, it's kind of like when we think about everything from a consumer perspective of like, ah, yes, I need to fit inside of your leisure time. I need you to feel good and entertained from this. The moment you begin to load your game with those sorts of expectations is the easier it is to fail at communicating anything meaningful. I understand why people want to go about that way, right? Because video games can be a mass medium of communication, of, of message bearing that a lot of people can interact with, but that comes with some consequences, right? Like sometimes uh, because of people's relationship with games and the way that particularly consumer entertainment games communicate. it can be difficult to really give a, a nuanced and deep understanding of the topic that you're, looking to communicate about. And that's a common issue. Like this is not even a unique critique for me. If I told people that storytelling in video games is still like rough, like no one's gonna say no. You know, (laughs) like everyone's gonna be like, yeah, it is still mostly emotions with shooting, you know? So like, I mean, so it's been a decade since I've been here professionally, but more than a decade since people have been talking about these sorts of issues. It's a foundational issue. It's not a random consequence.
1: So when you talk about using play versus using consumer entertainment games and adopting a kind of bottom-up strategy as opposed to a top-down one, does this relate to what you talk about when you talk about everyday activism.
0: Yes. That's kind of when I when I started to think about like, what is a way in which we can through our daily lives contribute towards cultural change? This is mostly because a kind of a grown weariness of sort of like one person waving the banner for cultural change that has definitely been exacerbated by social media which one person is like this beacon of light when it comes to some sort of activist angle. And we have uh, cycles of celebrity and burnout and whatever. And people don't feel like they can contribute towards activism because they don't have the followers or they're not able to be as loud or they work a job and they can't talk about things. I'm more interested in the activism that happens in kitchens, in bedrooms, in living rooms because Absolutely is activism happening in those places. Cultural change happens in those places, to me, more than it does in social media and in the streets. Those places are public and and obviously it's worthwhile, but we should know the sort of labor that goes into supporting more public displays of activism. And I think in order to kind of make activism itself more accessible to people, we shouldn't only be thinking, okay, it means lobbying the government which is what I feel like most people see activism as, is physically lobbying the government, is kind of how the activist in people's brains. But right now what we need is a shift in cultural attitudes and practices. So when I think about a sort of um, everyday activism, I see it as what is a way in which everyone can put in their Amounts in the way that makes sense for them in the social position that they can. Because I feel so often that like right now we have a more of like a consumerist activism, which either like you give money to some sort of cause, and that's the way that you kind of contribute, or you physically put yourself into lobbying for the government through protests, through marches, or through going to offices, going to government buildings. And so I feel like play has a lot of leverage in in those situations and in the more interpersonal everyday private quarters because that's when we kind of test all this stuff out like this cultural change like these new cultural stances is in our private spaces not in our public ones as much.
1: I want to relate this then to some of your own work that people are familiar with. So one thing that people know you for is your game Nietzsche, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that you made that for one person initially, right? So is that part of this kind of everyday activism, this this bottom-up approach?
0: Yeah, I would say. So Nietzsche was sort of like a, a single-player game that I made for my best friend to talk about mental health issues that I was going through prior to me leaving Florida, which is where I'm from and where I left her when I then moved to San Francisco to start my games, um, stint. And it was just a, a mode of communication, a way of showing something from a different angle. I didn't find it necessary to like, you know, make money from it or, you know, do anything in particular. I posted it on the internet for more like, Hey, I made a thing more than it was like, Oh, I need this to actually, go into galleries and be all over in international festivals. I was not expecting, you know, that when I first posted it to the internet, because it's just, you know, a little random five second game. But yes, I feel like it is more about those like small motions. I think where we can begin with this is where do we already play in our lives if we begin to think about things from that perspective there's ways in which we have play help us navigate change in everyday life uh fashion is a quite easy one right like often when we try to try out new clothes and we feel different and we also move differently um when we try out new clothes like i change styles kind of at least once a year and have a different sort of like attitude when I do like I have quarantine clothes basically in quarantine fashion at this point you know Didn't we all Don't we all right and so it is trying out a new aspect of ourselves and it is a change to kind of be like I kind of started to realize like oh my fashion really required movement and walking around and like all these things I was expecting, people looking at it, you know, <laughs> uh, where now I'm kind of like most of the reasons that I dressed the way that I did is because of the feeling it was when I was out in the world. But we also do other things. So you can even think of like a diet, like a healthy diet, like that is choosing particular things in order to try out a new you, if one will. And not necessarily for like, let's say losing weight, but let's say being more, you know. Ecologically responsible, being more humane, being more connected to the earth, right? Those are definitely ways in which we exercise our politics in a playful manner. Cooking, always, like, you know, trying something new, being in relationship to different things, especially here in New York City. It is like, you know, becoming acquainted with culture, sometimes your own culture, depending on on your background. I just feel like there's so many ways in which we already play, which could be Highlighted as places for more intentional play when it comes to cultural change. Now, I'm particularly interested in interpersonal relationships, emotional labor. And when it comes to, let's say, some social ills of the world, I'm really interested in kind of intimate partner abuse and also ways in which emotional labor affects marginalized people, particularly women and women of color and queer people. Um, And I'm really interested in how that affects activism, in how women, women of color, queer people, how the... Emotional fallout of what is necessary for cultural change falls on those sorts of people. And how does that come out in the ways in which we relate to one another? And I think that is quite fascinating and really difficult to interact with outside of something like play. Like, I don't know if there's anything that you can do really that would be super effective besides a playful intervention into the private lives of people run by those people because it's their private lives. So I think that there is some leverage that play has in those sorts of situations that other forms of art, and particularly consumerist art or, you know, games have.
1: Can you talk a bit more about how play can fit into those intimate relationships and, and how we can apply this kind of playful design to those kinds of intimate partner relationships? And what are the risks there? Because it seems like there might be a few.
0: Oh, there's plenty. This First of all, there's a huge ethical consideration when you want to consider change, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, whose change? Whose change are you talking about? Like, who has the right idea about change? Change itself is value dependent, right? Like, depending on other people's interpretation of change. And one person's good change is another person's bad change. So first of all, like, Any sort of like sort of social equity work, any sort of philanthropic work is already loaded with a bunch of ethical issues. So like for one, like even contemporary work outside of games in nonprofit sectors is already kind of compromised and or unknowable in its ethical impact so what i just want to put that out there also this should not also be seen as games prior as like some silver bullet some perfect solution some ways in which like things can all of a sudden be erased let's help me like continue on saying yes there are ethical considerations and maybe that is why we need to be designing with intent in this sort of scenario but to get to the spirit of your question one time for a project i made a sort of um alternate reality game, sort of like a role-playing, where I created a sort of practice around the idea of consent, because I was interested in consent in relationships. In particular, I was really interested in boundaries, particularly emotional boundaries in relationships, and also having intentional relationships. Like I would say conventionally, at least in most Anglophone cultures, relationships and their structures are really unspoken. They're kind of like moved along with more organic manners. Talking about the relationship is like kind of taboo kind of awkward yeah at all times at least in anglophone cultures which is a main problem when it comes to emotional labor consent and all these other issues that i'm really interested in like how can a relationship both be unspoken but also healthy Right. And so I'm like, okay, well, how do we begin to do this? Because even woke people who are like my friends or even myself, like the moment, like, you know, something is going down, being like intimacy of any manner, like you're not really thinking of like, oh, yeah, let's pull out this like exercise or let's talk about our relationship. Like you're kind of like caught up in the cultural movements in which you are currently present in. But either way, I made a game about a fictional scenario, which is the government now requires everyone to register all of their relationships. It's kind of like this sort of like faux dystopic thing. So you have to register all of your relationships and you also have to write a contract that describes all of your relationships. And it was under this sort of like what I call to monitor for fairness and inclusion is kind of the sort of like a speculative aspect of it. And so uh, you had this form and it had a list of terms and you had to discuss with your partner Where along a spectrum of these terms, such as, let's say, intuitive versus intentional was like one of the spectrums. Like, where do you put your relationship? And then you have to negotiate with the person that you're playing with. It isn't implied whether it's like a romantic or friendly or anything sort of relationship. It's just any relationship. And you had to discuss with them, not only what do those terms mean, but where along the spectrum do you fall? And there's about like eight of those. And then you kind of like, had a full conversation and you kind of have this sort of like artifact of like your contract with like, okay, well, this is our relationship. This is what we've mutually agreed to. And now here's like a visual representation of it. And what was really interesting was I did that experiment with a couple of people, including myself. I participated in it with someone. And it was really interesting to see how people after the experiment would bring it up. Only being like, okay, well, here's like this language that we discussed. And what did we really mean by that? And maybe we need to shift things again or whatever. And I'm not saying I changed anyone's lives, but like I thought it was quite interesting how an artifact from a play experience bled into into life and bleed is a particular sort of term from the larping community of like when feelings and experiences move in and out of game spaces and so to intentionally use bleed to intentionally move artifacts and experiences and emotions from game spaces into real life is kind of what I I was trying to experiment on in in design for, with that particular um, project. And so I could imagine that that could evolve in a more intentional design project where we reinforce those and help knead that into the general fabric of living.
1: What are the risks then of bleed? Like I think of psychological experiments, like the prison experiment and the supposed effect that it had on the way that people behaved and things like that. And if that carried on after the experiment, that would have been (laughs) unethical, right? So what are the risks there?
0: I mean, originally the term bleed was about risk awareness, you know, when it was first conceptualized as a term, it was about taking care of people and being able to use debriefing techniques in order to help usher people back into real life in a safe manner. And so bleed actually comes from a place of risk awareness of being like, well, how do we deal with the fact that when experiences do bleed out, there is a human on the other side that has to deal with that. What I would say is that there are a lot of other practices out there that intentionally put you into a different headspace and then through particular processes moves you out. So for instance, one common one is therapy right? So all therapy is a particular isolated space in which you go through particular emotions, you will bring something up, but it's up to the professional experience of a therapist to guide you out of it as much as guide you into it, right? Sometimes we only think about the guiding in part, but you have to be guided back out when you're vulnerable. And there's a lot of other practices and sort of um, activities that use similar techniques and I think that game designers and people who are interested in playing an impact need to learn from those practices of like you can't just export a game out there and say, you know, good luck with those emotions, right? Like you have to kind of be like, no, like if I'm going to bring someone to an intense place, I have to help bring them out. And Nordic LARP and American Freeform LARP, which is like the sort of like genre of really intense role playing games, have as a convention, develop these sorts of onboarding and debriefing techniques in order to take care of people and play experiences. So absolutely, like... I would say you can only be risk-aware. You can't be risk-proof when it comes to these sorts of practices because you're talking about changing culture. And I totally understand that some people are thinking of cultural issues as just like very discrete problems that you can just solve with some sort of like activist pill. But it's like not at all like there's a reason we're here and there's a reason activism never goes away. It's because like nothing really pans out exactly as we anticipate. We don't see every link to the problem as it arrives. And so like, we can't think of activism as a discrete time project. Which like, okay, for this certain amount of time, this is when we solve this issue and then we're done. Rather, I believe that activism is a continual thing through our lives that we have to just do a small bit every day as we live and just kind of fold that into living as opposed to thinking of it as an isolated project.
1: The notion of kind of onboarding and debriefing and all these different contexts sounds kind of like aftercare and things, right, in particular kinds of Mm -hmm. sexual relationships.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was kind of my original reference. Um so actually, I originally when I was writing in games and I was doing DIY game making stuff, I actually began to realize a relationship between BDSM and games activism, particularly when it comes to intentionally putting people into a headspace and intentionally taking them out of that headspace. And it was just quite interesting when I would, um Participate in events and just kind of like the way people just transform the moment they go into a very intentional play space and then transform again when they leave it is just remarkable uh, from a sociological anthropological perspective, but also as just a human being who's just, you know, um, experiencing it. And so for me personally, I began to get inspired By the different practices that people have been doing, of like if we are intentionally bringing each other into intense spaces of really intense emotions about bringing up, like maybe you know, past traumas, potentially going through a lot of physical exhaustion, depending on where you're going with that, like there is just an element of care that is endemic to what you have to do. And so, as a part of this sort of perspective, care is paramount and essential. Like if you are to do this without elements of care, I would say you are abusing people for sure. Or you're being really reckless and irresponsible. And I feel like maybe one reason why I kind of took this for granted in speaking about it is because my interest is actually in networks of care. And so my work is about care in general and how we can manage emotional relationships and labor in also viewing who gets cared for, who doesn't. Like where does care seem to distribute itself in different networks. That's a topic that I'm particularly interested in. And so um, natural to that, obviously, I'm thinking about care, moving in and out of care quite often when it comes to my activist work now. But maybe to people who aren't focused on that, yes, care is something that has to be involved because you're always interacting with ethical boundaries in ways that you just can't anticipate the results sometimes. Sometimes you're going to cross a boundary on accident and you have to know how do you deal with that? Like how do you handle a person in which you hurt? Like it happens and to have an intentional practice in which you interact with that is necessary for the activist play designer. It's not something that we can just like throw and hope that people fare well in doing.
1: Given your focus on everyday activism and kind of wanting to reassure people that you can't kind of solve all of the big problems of the world, you know, one person can't be this hero who just changes the law and fixes everything. What do you say to people who find themselves fixated on and like depressed by those big problems and feeling like their individual actions don't
0: matter? What I'll say is if you're connected to another human being you have essential work to do, period. If you have any connection to any other human being in any particular way, you have a job to do and you are the only person who can do it. And this is because our relationships with one another add up. Like the ways in which we all relate to each other add up into the larger culture in which we live in. So of course, you personally don't feel like your individual relationships or your individual self can change everything, but that's because that shouldn't be the ask. The ask shouldn't be, hey, you one person. Solve things, you know, and I know that's how it feels because on Twitter, you know, you'll see someone like retweet about how you should be doing X about racism or X about whatever, right? Like it's so easy because we consume things in such an individualistic manner, in such a branded manner, that we just see it as an individual endeavor. But in actuality, it's the summation of all of our relationships. And the quality of those relationships, the intentionality of those relationships, which is going to enable cultural change. And we can't do it without you. If you don't do it and then no one else does it because everyone else is also feeling disenfranchised, disempowered, then things won't change. If the quality of your own relationships from your end don't change, then we're stuck. So we need everyone in tandem to... Be intentional about the ways that they relate to one another about the the ways in culture exerts itself through our own bodies and through our own actions and to move about with intentionality and mindfulness in that way and so i think that like the reason why we feel depressed and down is because we're giving ourselves the impossible to solve yes you will not solve racism You know, I'm black. I'll just tell you, (laughs) you know, like if you all need an authority (laughs) on it, like you won't solve racism, get over it. Okay. So instead, instead of thinking that you personally need to solve racism, instead, what I would like is for you to consider how does race and the ways in which culture interacts with race exert itself through you and your relationships with the people that you care about. It does in some way. And how can you begin to be intentional? How can you begin to have that conversation? It doesn't have to be with every single stranger on the planet. Like, just start with the people you care about. You know, I feel like if everyone just started with the people they cared about, it would be done because, you know, everyone has at least one person that they care about and that will eventually add up. But if we continue to kind of bring on the sort of savior complex, you know, that we're all consuming from the sort of like, you know, branded culture of activism yeah, we're not going to change if we feel like we have to be the saviour for everyone's issues and problems.
1: If you enjoyed this episode with Matty, please let us know. It doesn't take long to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and we really appreciate it when people do. The next episode of Talking Simulator will be the last of this series, so your feedback will help us know if and when to make another. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at TalkingSimPod. And me, at Jerrica Webber. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. Talking Simulator is edited by Lemington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks. I'm Jordan-Erica Webber. Talk again soon.
0: i'm sorry can you hear that i can
1: a little bit what is
0: it it's a blender i think i unfortunately right next to a, a kitchen i'm sorry but um let's just wait for a second i'm sorry okay. um what was my train of where was i just we're talking about everyday
1: activism and it happening in bedrooms and kitchens and kitchens
0: yeah yeah exactly